Okay, so if you got an electronic device, you want to turn it to Isaiah 53. If you need a Bible, there's one in front of you. We're going to have it up here. Um, so we are spending our second week in, uh, in Isaiah 53, uh, the man of sorrows. So uh, does everybody know that um, Netflix just came out with that new documentary on David Koresh and the Branch Davidians? Yeah, yeah, I think it came out Wednesday. Um, so did you see right at the beginning, I just, we just started getting into it, and right away I'm like, oh my. So I've seen tons of documentaries, watched the miniseries, which was amazing. Um, how about that 3D, I don't know, model of going around the, at the beginning of it? It's just incredible. So anyhow, there's a, a young lady who was a child at the time. She's just being interviewed. She was there, but she was a little girl when it happened, and she's older now. She's been interviewed, and this is what she said. She says, I remember my mom telling me, you need to find God by looking at the clouds. And then this little girl, now a woman, says, I tried, but I never did. Many say today, you need to find God by looking at obedience. By looking at dedication and commitment, by looking at your passion, by looking at sold-out discipleship, follow him, stop sinning, be holy. And Isaiah 53, you know what Isaiah 53 says? You're looking for God in the clouds. I tried, but I never did, you will eventually say. So many say, you need to find God by looking at spiritual disciplines, the quiet time, prayer, reading your Bible, meditation, quietness, listening to the still, small voice, yielding, submitting, surrendering, fasting. Isaiah 53 says, you're looking for God in the clouds. I tried, but I never did, you will eventually say. Many say you need to find God by looking at the early church, apostolic succession, church fathers, the authority of church tradition, early church practices, high church liturgy, church calendar, super anointing of ordained people, the super infusion of the sacraments, the super reverence, transcendence, and holiness. Can we just have a brief, honest conversation? Really, really quick. Israel had the greatest experience ever recorded on the planet of transcendence and holiness at Mount Sinai when the law was given. And what happened? A revival? Uh, incredible holiness? A renewal in the mission to reach the world? Now, 30 seconds later, they were building a golden calf. Isaiah 53 says, you're looking for God in the clouds. I tried, but I never did, you will eventually say. Many say you, will find, you need to find God by looking at powerful experiences. You know, you need to feel his love and feel his comfort and feel his presence and feel his power and feel his Holy Spirit and feel his movements in your life and in the world. 
And many of us say, well, how? I mean, how does that happen? And it seems like the answers today, there are many answers, but the answers today, remember we looked at last week that there was a famous pastor that says, listen, I, I want to have an honest conversation with you preachers, you future preachers. You need to know that preaching is gone today. Preaching is lost in the church today. And I have my reasons. I think, you want to know what I think? I, the reason why I think preaching is gone today is because it's so moralistic. I mean, who wants it? If all we're preaching is moralism, who wants that kind of preaching? But he says, listen, preaching has been replaced by singing because at least in singing you find some comfort because nobody sings about the Ten Commandments. Why are we singing? Because we sing about who God is and what he's done. That's why it's so joyful. That's why it's so impactful. That's why it's so connecting to us. But what's happening is singing has replaced preaching for that. Right? And so what happens is, well, how do you connect with powerful experience? We have lots of singing. You know, we got to get into that as we were talking on our podcast, the spiritual Zen zone. Uh, there needs to be authentic. You need to get into that empty vessel zone. Other answers are you need to be yielded. You need to get in that thy will be done zone. Other answers are do spiritual disciplines. You need to get in that spiritual formation zone. Others say you need to be in a small group. You need to get in that community authentic accountability zone. And then finally, others say, listen, you just need to learn to tap into the mysterious movements of the Holy Spirit. You need to get in that empower encounter zone. Isaiah 53 says, you're looking for God in the clouds. I tried, but I never did, you will eventually say. Some will say you need to find God by, I mean, we can fill in the blank, right? So what are some of the things that are being said today now? The, all the fill in the blank. These, these are standards. Like These are standards that show up in every area of church history. These are golden standards of trying to find God. So this is not new. But there are some new things today. Now we're saying social justice, whatever that means. We say conservatism is saying so. Progressivism is saying so. Being good or being bad. You need to find God in relativism. In other words, believing what you want. Or in fundamentalism, believe what they say. Or we need to find God by meeting your needs. Or you need to find God by denying your needs. There are many ways today that people are trying to find God. Isaiah 53 says, you're looking for God in the clouds. I tried, but I never did, you will eventually say. So, let's say you say, I want to find God. How do you? Now, let's ask that as certainly a skeptic. If you're a skeptic out there, you're like, Man, I do. I want to try to find God. How do I find God? Great question. We're going to answer that in this text. But what about you Christians? What about a Christian? What about a Christian that's struggling or a Christian that's doing well and growing or a Christian in all the different phases of spiritual growth? How do you find God? I want to find God. How do you? Well, the answer is in Isaiah 53. Please stand for the hearing of God's word. All right, so we've already, last week, we looked at 1 through 9, so if you missed it, you can go catch it. Today we're picking up in 10, yet it was the will of the Lord, remember the Lord, that should be capital L-O-R-D, that's the good news God, 
Okay, that's what that means in the Old Testament. It was the will of the good news God to crush him. Now the him is the arm of the Lord. And remember we saw in verses 1 through 9 that the arm of the Lord was God, but distinct from God. And then we saw that the arm of the Lord was God who became human, so it was God become human. It's, it's a weird, strange thing happening in the Old Testament. And remember, it's so specific in verses 1 through 9 about a specific man of sorrows, a specific man in human history that, that scholars, some skeptical Bible scholars say, that couldn't have been Isaiah. How could he be so specific in his time in B.C. about someone hundreds of years later? And so they created a second Isaiah and a third Isaiah because there's such specificity about future historical events. All right. He has put him to death, which is the Lord has put him, the good news God has put him, the arm of the Lord, to death or to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he, the good news God, shall see his offspring. In other words, the Lord, the God become human's offspring. He, the good news God, shall prolong his day, meaning the God who became human's days. The will of the Lord, the good news God, shall prosper in his hand, the arm of the Lord's hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. Now watch what happens next, because now God is going to speak directly for the first time. And those of us that are insightful, like curious readers, want to know why now? Why all of a sudden does he directly speak? By his knowledge, literally by the knowledge of him, the arm of the Lord become human, shall the righteous one, my servant, make many be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, God is saying, here's my point, I will divide him, the arm of the Lord become human, a portion with the many. That is, he shall divide the spoil with the strong. He, because he poured out his soul to death. Now, don't miss this. This God become human, this arm of the Lord become human, dies in body and soul, according to this text. And he was numbered with the transgressors, yet but because he bore the sins of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. All right, this is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. Lord, we thank you for this text. I ask that you would now, right now, fill us with your spirit and help us move through the wonders of this text, move through the textual terrain of this text, move through the heights and the valleys and the works and the worth of this text. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so let's say you say, I want to find God. How do you? Some of you are true believers, right? Some of us here are really, we're true believers. We are looking for God in the clouds. We're looking for God in obedience. We're looking for God in spiritual disciplines. We're looking for God in the early church. We're looking for God in powerful experiences. We're looking God in fill in the blank. All right, and you're a true believer in those things. Some of you, though, are spiritually disappointed. I tried, but I never did. You've tried those things, and you never did. So you're in a spiritual disappointed state right now. And then some of you are none of the above. You're like, what are y'all talking about? You Christians are so neurotic. Right? One moment, you know, you're certain. Another moment, you're disillusioned. One moment, you're full of hope. Another moment, you're in despair. One moment, you're on mission. Another moment, you quit. What is up with you Christians? I want you to look at verse 11 and 12, if we could put it up there. 
This is God speaking directly again. Let's look at it, okay? So, out of the anguish of the soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, God's talking about this servant, make many to be accounted righteous. God is speaking directly. And he shall bear their iniquities. And let's go to 12. Therefore, I will do this. This language in verse 12 is the language of someone who just won a great battle. Of someone who just overthrew an enemy. Of someone who just conquered a champion. It's what happens in the descriptions of what happens in the ancient world. So why does God speak directly to you and me right here? Why does that happen? Why is God right now speaking directly to you and directly to me right now in these verses? The answer is because he doesn't want you to miss the meaning. Okay? Then you've got to ask yourself, well, why in the world would we miss the meaning? And the answer from the Bible from beginning to end, Genesis to Revelation, is, is because we're interpretive losers. In other words, here's what happens. The Bible says 2 plus 2. We read 2 plus 2 in the Bible, and we say, I know the answer. I know what that means. And we shout out 10. And we do it with such certainty. We do it with such passion. We do it with such spiritual energy. We do it with so much of it that we teach it, and we plant seminaries, and we plant churches, and hold denominations. It's 10. We are interpretive losers. Just ask Pharaoh. Don't you think Pharaoh would like a do-over? I mean, come on, right? Nine plagues. Nine plagues. And he's like, I'm in control. I can save myself. He watches the sea parts. The sea parts, and he goes, the gods love me. I'm blessed. Charge. I mean, just ask Jesus' disciples. Remember Jesus says, listen, guys. I mean, he says it over and over again. When I was preparing something a long time ago, I was just shocked at how many times he told them he was going to die and rise again. It was amazing. And so he says, listen, I'm going to die and then I'm going to rise. Disciple number one says, I will never let that happen. Disciple two and three turn to the other ten disciples and say, we're Jesus' favorites. We're going to be on the left and on the right when we get there. Sorry. And then how about, how about this? The disciples, they say, literally in the text, they say, listen, the women say he rose from the dead. The women are saying this. They're saying, we saw Jesus. He's risen from the dead. And what do the men say? We quit. It's over. We're all doomed. Run to Emmaus. We're interpretive losers. All of us. Verse 11 and verse 12. Do you know what God is saying to you and me right now? Verse 11 and verse 12. He's saying, listen, y'all. The reason why I'm telling you what this text means, the reason why I'm telling you what the man of sorrows means is because you're an interpretive loser, because you're spiritually blind. On your own, you can't see a thing. 
So just right away, here's some quick practical help. I've got two quick practical helps, and we're going to move into the text and find God in the text. I don't know what's going to happen when we do, but I do know we're going to find God in that text. Okay, here's help number one. I think you and I, all of us here, I think if we could do this, it would be tremendously helpful to all of us. Learn to distrust yourself more, not less. Distrust yourself more, not less. Okay? So what that means is admit it. Admit that you're spiritually blind. Admit it. I read that Luther had this, this, this confession. It was a confession of faith. I believe that I can't believe. It was unbelievable. What a confession. How many confessions of faith are that? An affirmation of faith. I believe that I can't believe. What if we just admit it? I'm spiritually blind. I, I can't read the Bible rightly. I can't see God in the Bible. I'm spiritually blind. Do you want to know why there are so many different interpretations of the Bible, so many different traditions? I mean, I hear that over and over again. Do you know how many times as a pastor I've heard as an argument, like it's an apologetic that God doesn't exist, or it's apologetic that something's wrong with the Bible? There's just so many interpretations. And I go, yeah, there is, isn't there? What do you think that proves? That the, something's wrong with the Bible. No, I said, no, no, it's not something's wrong with the Bible. Something's wrong with you. The problem isn't the Bible. The problem is you and me. We're interpretive losers. We're spiritually blind. That's why we don't see things clearly. So ask God, the Holy Spirit, to help you. This is so important. So when you admit that you're spiritually blind, the next thing is to ask God, the Holy Spirit, to show you what's already there. It's not to show you something that's not there. It's to show you what's already there, to open your eyes to what's there. And then how do you know what's there? You move with the grain of the text. Because whatever the meaning of the text is, that's what's there. All right, so distrust yourself more, not less. Second, this leads us to the second help. And it has to do with some of us are thinking, and I know, because it's very popular today, I... You need to know I have tons of friends that have moved in this direction. I've seen ministers that have started in one tradition that is completely on this side and have ended up on a tradition completely on this side in a span of five years. Gone to seminary with them. Been ordained with them. And it's not so much that I'm like, oh, wow, you've changed traditions. It's from this extreme of a tradition to this extreme of a tradition. What's happening? Well, right now, there is a movement to get back to the early church. So, you need to find God by looking at the early church. Isaiah, the Bible, God says, listen, this is what it would say to those of us that are really moving in that direction. Here's the answer to that. You, not only do you need to learn to distrust yourself more, but the church needs to learn to distrust itself more, not less. The church needs to learn to distrust itself more, not less. Just ask the apostles. I mean, which early church do we want to go back to? Galatia? Paul called anathema down on them. 
Do you want to go back to the church at Corinth? What was happening at Corinth makes today's scandals look G. Think I'm kidding? Read it. And not only that, these churches, these early churches, had the apostles leading them. The apostles leading them. They didn't have someone in the first century or the second century or the third century, one of those church fathers. All the apostles, Peter, John, and Paul, make it absolutely clear in their writings. They say, listen, from when we leave, what we have done is we are the Holy Spirit's agents of inspiration and inscripturation. The church is now built on that scripture. That's the authority. Now, what they say is the generations of church leaders that come after us, from Timothy to modern day, this is what they say. They are like Swiss cheese. They're full of holes. Church leaders will always have spiritual holes in them. Church leaders will always have biblical holes in them because they're interpretive losers. They're spiritually blind on their own. The church, as well as Christians, need to learn to distrust themselves more, not less. All right. But Isaiah does say, and the Bible does say, And God does say, when the church, because the Bible creates the church, the Bible speaks the church back to life again. When the Bible creates the church, when the Bible creates a Christian, when the Bible speaks you back to life again, you finally are relevant in the world. Church leader, if that happens to you, now you have something to say. The Bible creates you. The Bible speaks you back to life again. Distrust yourself more, not less. Trust the Bible more. Okay. Let's say you say, I want to find God. I want to find him. How do you? Something happens in verse 10 through 12. Let's put up 10 through 12. We'll just move as I move. Malachi and I are in the Zen zone. We know how to do this. Right, brother? There we go. All right. I want you to see what we're about to look at. We're going to walk through this text, and you're going to say, why walk through this text? Because there's a really interesting verse in Romans 10 where it says, how are they going to believe unless someone, unless they call on the Lord? And how are they going to call on the Lord unless they, someone is sent to them? And it's interesting. It says, how will they believe him whom they've never heard? Isn't that interesting? Now, some say him of whom they've never heard. So they say, well, they just need to have information about Jesus, and then they hear him. But Paul is saying that's an interpretive decision. I know you love this. It could either be a subjective genitive or an objective genitive. What that means is either it's this. How do they believe him whom they've never heard, or how do they believe in him of whom they've never heard? Paul is saying in the very next verse, faith comes by hearing, hearing the words of Christ. In other words, in the scripture, he speaks to you. He shows up. So we're about ready to go through 10 through 12, and Jesus shows up, okay? So here we go. I want you to, just some preliminary things to think about. I want you, whatever we're going to look at, I want you to see that it's not a possibility, something happens. It's not a potentiality, something happens. In other words, it's not something you do, obedience or spiritual formation. 
it happens. It's not something you believe. It's not something the church believes. It's not something the culture believes. It happens. It's not something you experience. It's not something you feel. It's not something you desire. It happens. It's not something you choose. Not something you activate. It happens. When his soul, whose soul? The man of sorrow's soul. When his soul makes an offering for guilt. This is what this means. The man of sorrow's is offered up on behalf of the guilty. Now, what are the guilty? Who are the guilty? You see that word guilty? What is that? An offering for guilt. You know what that means? It's everyone that's chained to sin. Chained to its debt, chained to its nature, chained to its realm. You're in the realm of the dead. It's, it means this, that you're chained to yourself. You know what, how Luther describes that? You're chained to what's called the Adamic self. He also calls it the collapsed self. He calls it the spiral self. It means that you're chained or entrapped in the perfect spiral, the downward sinking spiral of the self, and you can never get out. Listen to how he says this. He says, you're being entrapped in the endless downward spiral of a circle, talking to yourself ceaselessly. That's the guilty. You're chained to the law. You know what that means? The guilty, you're chained to the law? Is that the law is endlessly demanding of you. Endlessly accusing you. Endlessly condemning you. Endlessly killing you. But there's always more to kill. That's the guilty. It means being chained to death and misery, but an ever always present dying, and eventually an eternal death, a comprehensive death that's popularized called hell. That's the guilty. And the man of sorrows is offered up on behalf of the guilty. In other words, your chains are gone. Something happens. Do you see how phenomenal that is? All your worst nightmares, the moment he's offered up, your chains are gone. Something happens. He shall see his offspring. Whose offspring? The man of sorrow's offspring. So God, distinct from the God that became human, will see the God that became human's offspring. Who are these offspring? Isn't that interesting? Because in verse 6, they were guilty sheep, but now they're sons and daughters. Your chains are gone. Something happens. Let's keep going. He shall prolong his days. Who will prolong his days? God will prolong the days of this God that's distinct from God. When you prolong the days, you're giving life. You're giving days. In other words, this God will raise him. Something happens. 
your chains are gone, something happens. Go to the next one. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Do you see that? The will of the Lord. All right, see 10 and at the end. Look at the beginning. Notice how it's the will of the Lord sandwiches this whole verse. So it happens two times. It's the key point. Do you see that? Do you see what's happening? Verse 10 begins with it. It was the will of the Lord. It was the will of the Lord to prosper in his hand. Don't miss this. The man of sorrows had not come to tell you what he wants. That's not why he came. He came to be what God wants. The will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. He didn't come to tell you what God wants. He came to be what God wants. Something happens. Let's keep going. Verse 11, out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. So the man of sorrows, this man of sorrows has anguish. But out of this anguish, he sees an accomplishment. Out of this anguish, he sees something achieved. Out of this anguish, something happens. And now let's get to uh, verse uh, 11, that second half, in case we've misinterpreted verses 1 through 11 so far. In case we've misinterpreted it, God tells us what it means. He says, by the knowledge of him shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. So the righteous one, this is amazing, the righteous one will actually give you his own righteousness. What would it like, what would it be like to not go through life feeling that demanding and that accusation and that condemnation and that killing, to not be feeling that guilt and any of the emotion that goes with guilt, which is called shame, what would it be like to know that you've been given the very righteousness of God himself? How much healing in your life would come if you believe that? How much healing in relationships, with, how much boldness, how much courage how much bravery how much like someone come up to you and say hey man you are the most selfish sinful person i have ever seen and you could say you're right i have the righteousness of christ you want authenticity that's authenticity you want energy that's energy Let's keep going. He shall bear their iniquities. So this is unbelievable. So the righteous one, Luther calls this the happy exchange. He gives you his righteousness. He takes your iniquities. I was reading in Paul. You know how Paul describes it? I was telling that to the communicants this morning. Paul describes it as that he swallows your sin and he swallows your death. It's amazing. So God, Jesus, goes into the valley of the shadow of death He's entrapped. He's enslaved in sin. He's enslaved in death. He's in the realm of the death. And then he turns it around and he takes it and swallows it. Every bit of it. And beats it. His death conquers death. His death swallows sin. There is no more for you. Therefore, again, we get into verse 12. Just in case we missed it, he summarizes everything and tells you Jesus accomplished this for you. It's a victory. It's done. It's over. But notice that he accomplishes it now, and he gives all the rewards to you. His righteousness, his death, his life, all his medals to you. 
your chains are gone. Something happened. So you say, I want to find God. How do you? Isaiah says, by looking at something that happened. Many of us are thinking, oh, gosh, come on, that can't be it. That's it. That's, that's it. That's the Christian life. That's how you grow as a Christian. That's what worship is all about. That's how you connect with God. That's how we connect with each other. That's how we do mission. That's how we do justice. That's how we love. That's how we serve. That's how we take care of people in need. That's how we do our families. That's how we parent. Are you kidding me? That's it. That can't be it. Come on. There's got to be more. Like, what about repentance? And what about faith? And what about holiness? And what about the Holy Spirit? And what about worshiping God and loving God and the holiness of God? Let's pick one, shall we? First of all, as I was, when I was preparing this last night and I was writing this down, I just realized, oh, my word, this is what Naaman told Elijah. This can't be it. Just go dip myself in the, in the river? I'm a great man. I've got to do great things. This can't be it. There must be more. Elijah goes, well, dip yourself in the river. That's all I can tell you. What about repentance? Well, what about it? What does the Bible say about repentance? It doesn't say your obedience leads you to repentance. It doesn't say your willpower leads you to repentance. It doesn't say your spiritual formation leads you to repentance. What does the Bible say? His kindness leads you to repentance. What happened leads you to repentance. Okay, well, what about faith? What about faith? I mean, what about it? What about faith? How do I get faith? How does the Bible say you obtain faith? Well, not faith comes by feeling. The Bible says faith comes by hearing, the ear, and specifically hearing the gospel, what happened. When you hear the gospel, the Holy Spirit is released on you and supplied to you and fills you and grows you and sanctifies you and reaches you and renews you and creates growing faith in you. Find faith by looking at what happened. Repent by looking at what happened. Well, what about obedience, holiness, the Holy Spirit? Well, what about it? I mean, how do you become holy? How do you get the Holy Spirit? Because getting the Holy Spirit would be holiness, right? How does that happen? Well, not abide in self-effort, abide in powerful experiences, abide in the early church. Jesus says, abide in me. Abide in me, and you bear fruit. And then Paul goes on and just asks the question outright. He goes, man, does the, Holy, does the one who supplies the Holy Spirit do it because you did something, works of the law, or because you heard something, the gospel? And the answer is because you heard something. You get the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit, Paul is saying, is supplied to you by hearing good news, Christian, 
So let's just say you want to be holy. You want to be filled with the Spirit. You want to grow. You want this area of your life to change. According to the Bible, it's not by the branch trying to produce it on its own. According to the Bible, the branch only happens any kind of fruit when it's attached to the vine. And according to Paul, how do you functionally experience and get the Holy Spirit? How do you functionally experience and get life change? And it's by hearing. And the great general Naaman goes, that can't be it. It's too easy. I must do something great. And that's the point. You don't do something great. He did something great. It's what happened. Finally, what about knowing God, worshiping God, loving God? Well, what about it? How do you know God, worship God, love God? How does that even happen? Well, not, here it is, right from John, no one has ever seen God. Okay, we haven't seen God, so how are we going to see him? How are we going to find him? No one has ever seen God, but singing, high church liturgy, spiritual disciplines, and social justice makes him known. No, it says... No one has ever seen God, but the only God who is at the Father's side, Jesus, the man of sorrows, he has made him known. And that's an interesting thing because God is in the grammar. It's a perfect tense, which means he made him known, it happened, and he continually makes him known because it happened. How are you going to know God? How are you going to love God? How are you going to worship God? By looking at what happened. How are you going to have holiness? How are you going to get the Holy Spirit? By looking at what happened. How are you going to get repentance? How are you going to get faith in your life? By looking at what happened. Amazing. Amazing. It's now mythology at Redeemer, right? It's part of the myth. It's a legend. It's a story. It has epic proportions. It grows every time it's told. Some of you have heard it. Some of you had not. And that's why I'm going to tell you again. And those that have heard it, it's like, ah, I remember. So there's a guy named Dr. Hanna. And he's a professor. And he was my professor. And he was my mentor. And Pete and I, my brother, we would do everything we could to spend time with him. You know, we were like, we were those dudes. Can I hold your books? Where are you going? We'll follow you, right? You need a ride to the airport? I'll drive. You need someone to work your roof, put a roof on your house, new roof? I'll do it, right? He did things the old-fashioned way. He would teach on Jonathan Edwards. He'd teach on Calvin, and he did it in his home. He'd have six guys there. It was amazing. So on one such occasion, he says, I need a ride to the airport. I said, I'll do it. So we're driving to the airport, just talking about everything and everything. It's just classic. And he's getting out JF, I mean, not JFK, uh, DFW, that wonderful and like incredible airport that we have up north. Right? My Uncle John has, what, seven stitches from that wonderful airport? Yeah. All right. So we're in the airport. I'm driving him. He's getting out of the car. You know, everyone's honking because you got to get out really, really quick up there. He reaches into the back, grabs his suit coat, grabs his coat. He's walking by the open window, and I said, Dr. Hanna, one more question. And he puts his hands on the door, looks in like this, and I said, what's the secret to the Christian life? (laughs) I was one of those guys. 
beholding him. You say, let's say, I want to find God. How do you? Not by looking at your obedience. Not by looking at your spiritual commitment. Not by looking at the early church. Not by looking at powerful personal experiences. Not by looking at social activism. Not by looking at conservatism. Not by looking at progressivism. But by looking at him. Beholding him. Look at what happened. And you will trust him. And you will rest in him. And you will come alive by him. And you will repent when you need to repent. And you will believe when you need to believe. And you will obey when you need to obey. That's the Christian life. Let me pray for us.